What does the end of civilization sound like? Is it a crescendo of destruction and violence, or a whimper breathed into the void? What are the visuals that accompany it? A storm of blooded steel, or smoke fading away into the darkness? Now, while we sitting here can't really say for sure, we certainly know the means that may bring about such an end. War, natural catastrophes, all the usual suspects. And many people throughout history have certainly died believing that they themselves are caught up in the end times, that they are perhaps, in some individual way, seeing part of that death, seeing civilization, or at least the story of civilization that they hold to be true, draw to a close. For them, that story is over, and in the most tragic of ways. The great experiment of civilization and the promise that we all hold that though we may not live to see our objectives realised, the children and grandchildren of our generation might at least approach a little closer. The idea that all of that would and could be cancelled midway, driving peoples backward to a place before such dreams even existed? Well, it's the stuff of nightmares, a real Statue of Liberty in the Sand moment, a Collapse of the Bronze Age moment, a Xenophon awed by the ruins of Nineveh kind of moment. This is the story of one civilization, its survival, the lengths taken to preserve it, and the peoples and powers used to protect it. It is the story of an empire, the empire, not from our own world or history, but from another time and another place, presented to us by the various scholars and sources of profound decisions. It is a place not of our world, but you can go there, and thousands of us have. But let me take a step back here. Because while the Empire may be known to some of you, its existence on a world beyond our own immediately presents certain unique challenges that force me to set the stage quite a bit. Because if I was proposing to tell you the story of, say, 1066, there's a good chance that many of you will not only know what the date represents, but have a good insight into all the major players as well. Even if you didn't, I could reasonably count on your understanding of certain ancillary information, allowing me to make logical assumptions. The moment I said Europe or England and started talking about the Normans, well, there's a good chance that you would likely have a general understanding of at least where I may be talking about. Secondly, I need to be upfront and apologise for skipping over your favourite details. I'm obviously not going to be able to cover everything here, and frankly, the story of the Empire is so interesting and complex that if I mentioned everything worth mentioning, well, there are entire sprawling websites dedicated to that kind of thing. Instead, what I'm going to do is give you a rather streamlined version of these events, told unapologetically in my own style, with a focus given to narratives that have drawn my particular eye. Finally, let me end this little pre-ramble by saying that for all my efforts here, the best source of information is to travel to the Empire and inquire about its history for yourself. Perhaps you can even forge a little piece of your own. Others certainly have. And while I may be about to render everything about to say beyond this point entirely irrelevant, this really does draw my mind to a saying that is thought to originate with a certain group of people from the Empire itself, the Sentinels of Urizen. I hear and I forget. I see and I remember. I do and I understand.
So firstly, and I apologise to any imperial cartographers listening, I want you to picture a large X with two broad bottom legs. This is the basic shape of the landmass we are interested in. Roughly the centre of that X is where this empire I spoke about earlier will ultimately span out from, but all of this is still some time into the future. For now, let us travel to the cold north, where we have the aptly named People of the North. These include the ancient Suak and Kalavasi, who had dealings with a third people, known to us as the Ushka. Together, these three share an ancestry in the far north, well beyond the scope of this telling, and possibly the entire landmass itself. To the east, another people, known to us as the Gwerin Morfa, also emerged to occupy the treacherous marshlands found there. Those wishing to glimpse even further into the past can look to the high places of this land, where archaeological evidence alludes to an ancient and now lost race of humanoids. They built mighty spires into the mountains, from which they seem to have studied the stars and skies in great detail. These structures likely stem from a time before this whole era, and seem to suggest that their makers were noticeably taller than humans. What became of them, we do not know. Perhaps they migrated, transitioned, or travelled through means we do not yet understand. But it is also possible that they endured great tragedy, similar to what I spoke of at the beginning, and simply watched their civilization fail. Little research has been conducted, or has made its way down to us, and so their halls remain as silent monuments to this time before times. To us they are like the tip of a mast poking out of deep dark waters that stray far beyond our sight. Maybe one day someone will dive down there and explore the wreckage further, shedding light onto something wonderful or terrifying. But sadly that is not this day. We are forced therefore to move back and continue our story with the peoples of the north who traded and fought with each other and other early humans living in the northern lands. But most importantly, they fought with the ancestors of the Jotun and the Thule, who give us cause to introduce a second and distinct race to our story, the Orcs. Now, and this is no great revelation here, we modern humans simply don't have any other life forms on the planet that we can conduct meaningful diplomacy with. But we also know that this was likely not always the case, Let's consider our own relationship with Neanderthals, who we doubtless had complex interactions with. The fact that many of us have varying degrees of Neanderthal DNA attests to that. And while the various liaisons between orcs and humans has never resulted in any offspring, there are a great many intellectual, emotional, technological and cultural comparatives that both races share. I say this because I believe that these factors would certainly add more diplomatic technicolour to the general narrative that this whole era has often been painted with, and that narrative is predominantly one of war. So I want you to gradiate what follows with what I believe to be a much more likely story of diplomatic ebbs and flows, ones that built like a pressure chamber rattling towards ultimate failure. So when thinking of these very early relationships between humans and orcs, picture countless wars, skirmishes, treaties, diplomacy, sieges, sackings, buildings, rebuildings, espionages, intrigues, trades, betrayals, and other goings-on that likely lit to this entire era, but remain hidden from us behind the historical veil. And often, especially with ancient history, you just can't get your hands on enough reliable sources to say anything exactly about a specific time. 
All you can do is see what other people later on think about it. And even if their views throw bias into the mix, you at least get their view on where you're going, even if you can't fully trust where you're coming from. With that in mind, historian Helene de Coyne, and by the way I need to apologise in advance for unceremoniously butchering the many beautiful names of people and places throughout this telling, but her work on the people of the North summarises this migration south of the Northern people and their early encounters with the Orcs, stating that, quote, they found that the fertile lands of the south were utterly dominated by the orcs, and so they took up residence in the deep forests and hills of the north, in the shadow of the great mountain beyond which lay Otkadov. In time, the Suak and Kalavasi split away from this unnamed forerunner people and went into the cold plains and marshes of the west. End quote. This turning aside of the migrating humans by the orcs took place over many years, without either race utterly subjugating the other. Nonetheless, I have to concede that we simply don't know, and all that matters as far as our story is concerned is that this whole period ultimately becomes known as one of strife and conflict. Therefore, we are forced to say that if there were people working towards peaceful coexistence, we can only conclude that they failed, and within the relative silence of those years, the depth of their failure can be found. And what does failure mean at this point in time? War, certainly, and all the genuine horrors that such conflicts entail. But for me, and after all this is my own personal version of imperial history you're getting here, it's one of the specific byproducts of all these wars that really leaves a lasting mark on this whole story. Slavery. Slavery is a theme that will run throughout our telling, turning it in ways that only something as truly heartbreaking as slavery can. Beyond the many individual traumatic experiences it creates, Slavery also forcibly moves entire populations, breaking them up and sowing them across vast distances, injuring cultures or destroying them altogether. Even the winning and amusing air quotes here, slave-keeping side are impacted, because once the institution of slavery seeps into the economy of a nation, it builds certain reliances and power dynamics that damage a society not just morally, but foundationally. Slaves replace unskilled and even skilled labour pools, diminishing a civilization's ability to sustain or cultivate classes below the top rung within traditional roles. Cultural, social and technological advancements can stagnate when needs are met by slave labour, and strange derangements in the way a society and its economy function begin to develop. New laws and an increased need for enforcement, militias and garrisons often follow, as slave owners become increasingly concerned by not just the keeping of their slaves, but also the threat of potential slave revolts. Over time, a slave-keeping nation can mutate into an increasingly militarised police state, one that erodes even the options and freedoms of its own people. And so, of course, slavery becomes its own sort of foul economic forest fire that burns people for fuel. And like any fuel, there is always a need and a greed for more, causing the net destruction, tragedy and suffering to spread. During these years of domination by the Central Orc tribes, many unknown groups of humans may have fallen prey to their power and found themselves pressed into slavery, ravaged by war, or simply pushed aside and forced to seek unfavourable homes in less fertile lands. And full disclosure here, the Orcs will serve as a constant and much underrepresented counterpoint to this entire story. They are the other side of this history, 
and will often get the short end of the stick. Unfortunately, we often lack the sources to fully capture their perspective, and must therefore draw on imperial sources instead. I should say that this is not in any way intended to play down some of the truly horrible things the orcs will do. They certainly started a good number of wars, conducted themselves fiercely both on and off the battlefield, and are at times responsible for keeping many slaves in truly awful conditions. But as we all know from a casual observation of our own history, none of these outcomes are innately an orc thing, and humans have certainly done all of these things just as thoroughly and just as terribly. The power of these orc tribes forced the free human societies into taking different strategies to ensure their survival. The Ushka turned to the dark forests and caves, where they found protection and entirely new dangers in powers we will later discuss. Meanwhile, the Suak and Kalavasi found themselves pinned between both the orcs and a third race that is now lost to us, the trolls. While orcs are physically tougher, with slightly heavier bones and thicker skin than humans, they are more or less similar in terms of raw output. Trolls, however, are far greater in stature than either race, as shown by Imperial scholars discussing the artifact troll hammers, large, two-handed weapons that survive from this time. Quote, A common misconception about this weapon is that it is named Trollhammer because it is a weapon used to kill trolls. While this may be the case, the fact of the matter is that early winter folk first encountered these weapons in the hands of trolls, and only used them at the point where they took them away from their previous owners. Fully grown trolls could wield such hammers in only one hand. Stories of the final battles tell of troll champions who used these weapons to devastating effect, crushing all who came before them until eventually they were overwhelmed by sheer weight of numbers. End quote. It is important to note that lifting a weapon and wielding one effectively in battle are two very different things. While the materials and construction methods found in the world of the Empire allow for some shapes and sizes of weapons that may not fit into our own history, there are still limits, with one-handed weapons ranging between 24 and 42 inches in length, and two-handed weapons extending beyond that. Troll hammers of this time are often around 60 inches in length, and remember, these are top-heavy weapons. A troll could not just hold one, but wield one effectively in the most dangerous situations. War, in a single hand. Think of the physiology required to do that. Now imagine facing off against such an opponent, and not just one, a whole army of them. Trolls are also sometimes credited with the ability to regenerate from wounds, though such accounts may simply be the result of people trying to explain the extraordinary ages that trolls could apparently reach. There may be some truth to these accounts, however, as a quote, troll creature imprisoned in chains at the bottom of a well was found relatively recently in the imperial territory of Mitwold. This creature, thought to be the source of the folklore legend known as Bloody Jack, was described as follows, quote, Twice the size of a person and impossible to kill. According to the stories, the creature recovered almost immediately, even from mortal wounds, and limbs hacked off continued fighting. End quote. Much of this may be little more than exaggerated story, of course, but something kept the creature alive down there all these years. And if it is a troll, or a relative of their kin, 
it further explains the incredible challenge and threat that such beings would represent to the winter folk of this time. Trolls are all but lost to us now, however, and the winter folk keep little written history from this time, but the oral traditions and relics that do survive from this period, known simply as the Troll Wars, give us a few clues we can work from. While some narratives like to portray the trolls as being little more than beasts, I find myself agreeing with historical researcher Peter of Hintown, who points out that, quote, There is no coherent, consistent description of the trolls, nor of their civilization. Indeed, many winter folk scholars deny that they had any civilization at all, and characterize them as being little more than great beasts. I find this description inconsistent. There are plenty of stories in which human heroes speak to the trolls, usually before engaging in epic battle. Peter then continues by himself quoting The History of the Free Peoples, a respected source for pre-imperial Wintermark history. He continues, For hundreds of years, the people of the extreme north, the Suak and the Kalavasi, were isolated from the rest of humanity by a troll kingdom that held sway over the mountain passes of Hanamark. The trolls warred with the humans and forced them further and further into the cold, bringing them to the desperate brink of extinction. Peter then concludes from these texts, Beasts do not make kingdoms, and they do not make war. The text also speaks of troll armies, and again, beasts do not form armies. End quote. So the trolls likely had a powerful, lasting civilization that, as we can see, forced the winter folk of this time deeper into the cold, inhospitable north. These territories are some of the most desolate places in the empire, further north of which lay truly daunting conditions, such as the eternal ice storm of Shaidanja, a roaring blizzard that blows all year round and from which no traveller has ever returned. With resources scarce, war with the trolls was perhaps inevitable, but it seems as though there existed a span of time where the Suak, Kalavasi and trolls neighboured each other, if not in peace, then possibly something closer to a raid and evade culture for the humans, and let's call it a robust, elbows out foreign policy for the trolls, who lorded over the Silver Peak Mountains, high places, and many of the most valuable paths from their citadel of ancient ice. This left the Suak and Kalavasi to at first squabble over the scraps, but ultimately come together and make war on the trolls. Suak scholar Laurie Jocelanta says of these times, quote, At some point, relations between the Suak and Kalavasi and with the troll folk of the mountains and hills soured and turned to outright bloodshed. While the ancient sagas place a brave face on it, it is clear from the poems and songs that the hunters and mystics, even fighting together, were outmatched by the trolls. End quote. Hardly surprising, considering their apparent size, strength, and myriad other advantages. So a desperate people, pressed to the brink, decide to band together and roll the cold, hard dice on the civilizational craps table. It's a tragic story, whispered by a thousand lost civilizations throughout time. Normally, this is where the story of such a people not only ends, but is forgotten, and the trolls crash down from their mountain holdings to crush, enslave, and drive their foes 
into historical irrelevancy. But what if at the last moment, when it looked like the dice were going to settle on disaster, the table is nudged by a third player, with fresh chips and the will to stand beside you? The house always wins, unless you burn it to the ground. It is at this pivotal moment that the Steiner and their civilizational siblings, the Vard, emerge from the north and enter the scene. Both people seem to share a mysterious, common ancestry, and their oral traditions tell of how their forebears fell from the stars, or refer to themselves as being children of the stars. And though these legends are likely some kind of metaphor, I personally enjoy the fantastical version. However, if I was forced to pitch a mundane explanation, I would perhaps suggest that their ancestors mirror our own Inuit cultures, and once lived near large fallen meteorites which they mined for metals and worshipped. But that is just my own opinion, and who is to say? The true origins will likely remain a mystery. Nonetheless, this theme of the Steiner and the Vard being related runs true throughout both cultures, as historian Helene de Coyne mentions. Quote, The idea that the Steiner and the Vard are related is repeated again and again in both cultures. In Varushka particularly, the Vard are portrayed as the wise, realistic, and slightly cynical sibling, while the Steiner are portrayed as young, impetuous, and impressed with their own foolhardy strength of arms. Wintermark tales, by contrast, characterise the younger brother as strong, courageous, and full of heroism, while the elder Vard are pessimistic, old, and prone to procrastination. End quote. So this sibling rivalry could be viewed in many ways, but my guess would be that these two represent a second wave of northern migrators, ones who share a common ancestry, and who the divergence between probably stems from a lost time of political or ideological drift. I would, if forced again to conjecture a mundane explanation, propose that the Steiner probably represent an emerging counterculture or a movement against those of more traditional values who would themselves emerge from this lost parent civilization and become known to us as the Vard. Like all siblings, there was probably a good deal of squabbling, but ultimately the two groups seem to have resisted or have outgrown the urge to settle their differences on the battlefield and migrated south together in relative harmony. Regardless of the truth behind both people's origins, they emerge on the scene and immediately attempt to drive inland, only to be turned aside by the orcs who dwell there. However, rather than blunt themselves upon the firm resistance in their way, it seems as though both peoples essentially diverted their attentions, splitting from each other at this point and moving in different directions. The Vard making contact with the Ushka in the northeast, and the Steiner, who we will follow for now, reaching the Suwak and Kalavasi in the northwest, both of which are currently deep into their struggle against the trolls. Though previously unable to pierce the orc defences, the Steiner still seem to represent a powerful fighting force in their own right. So, with the Suwak and Kalavasi reduced from their war against the trolls, the Steiner probably could have inserted themselves as the second place power in the region if they had wished to do so. But the Steiner are not a people 
to settle for the comfort of second place. Theirs is a culture of adventurers, driven to face hardships and foes, to prove themselves and their honour. They are a sort of civilizational experiment, if you will, testing what exactly happens to a people if all the cultural carrots and sticks spanning back generations beyond memory are steered towards the concept of pursuing heroism. This trait likely emerged from living in lands which would slowly weed out the timid and that require calculated risks to be taken, and not just for personal advancement or glory, though such things probably served as motivators for some, but instead as a mechanism to reward those who take on risks that improve the lives of the group as a whole. On the surface, each of these three people, the Steiner, the Suak and the Kalavasi, seems starkly different, with the stereotypical Suak often seen as a cunning hunter and the stereotypical Kalavasi as a watchful mystic. However, these warriors, hunters and mystics each share an ancestry unified by a life forged in these harsh northern places. All three have been tested for generations by their peers and by their environment. All three, therefore, evolved a tradition that finds, in their own way, worth in the shared value of heroism. It is worth noting that like the Steiner, the Suak and Kalavasi have their own mystical origin stories. Among the winter folk, there are a people known as Scops, who act as honoured bards and storytellers, and who keep oral traditions and histories alive. Many of these tales claim that the Suak are descended from a single mother, and are the brothers and sisters of seals. Meanwhile, the Kalavasi are described as having been born from the fallen feathers of crows, fantastical metaphors, perhaps. But in this world, where fantastical creatures roam, metaphors can often bleed much closer to the truth. For example, the existence of the Hulye, a lake folk who apparently possess the ability to turn into seals, inevitably casts these stories in a potentially different light. Who then is to say what evidence may lay hidden behind the claims of the Kalavasi? Regardless, each of these three traditions now stands at a moment in history, where each must choose between turning upon the others and harvesting what remains for immediate survival, or banding together to stand against the trolls. It is here our first historical figure enters the scene, and while I apologise for skipping over any others that may have come before, the legendary figure of Ape Ukuking, a Suak known as the Chief of Chiefs, demands her due. She is perhaps best detailed by historical researcher Laurie Jokiranta, who draws her sources from Taban's Annuals, a collection of stories from the people of ice. Though this text is over 350 years old, the events it describes are far older still, but it would seem to be the earliest reliable source on the matter. Through Jokiranta's research of this document, Ape is described as, quote, a hunter who is said to have great prowess in finding and slaughtering great beasts, whales, mammoths, and dire creatures of the north, both to feed her people and to protect them. All accounts agree that while she was a leader, she was a woman of simple tastes 
who loved nothing more than to spend long nights singing and talking with her people. She was described as being short for her people, with long dark hair and a face shaped by the wind, rain and sun, and the body of a warrior rather than a ranger." End quote. But though these deeds of protecting and serving her people as chief are indeed laudable, and her appearance and demeanour are both striking and inspiring, these are just the first verse from which her story will be sung. It was she who bound the Kalavasi and Suak together, meeting with the elders of Rundhal in the capital of Kalavasa, and ending their feud by forging a treaty sworn according to legend in blood and ice. But as we have already seen, this alone will not defeat the trolls. And so it is said that Ape set out to meet the first of the Steiner to arrive in these lands, seeking to take their measure and perhaps offer further unity and a shared vision of a north free from the reign of troll kind. Interestingly, there are those among the Steiner who speak of dreams that guided them to this place of meeting, and some who believe that the mystics of Rundhal sent forth these dreams to orchestrate this moment. Perhaps then, Ape herself was simply the hand needed to clasp the chisel, and these unnamed Kalavasi mystics were the true architects, driving these three peoples together. Again, who can say, and in the times that will follow, there will be no shortage of honour, sacrifice, blood, and heroism to go around. And so, the hunter, the mystic, and the warrior came together as one, free peoples, though not yet one nation, but for now they were one army, and that was enough. But aside from this fire, where the free peoples sit, share tales, and build upon their fledgling fellowship, we move to the shadows, where Ape is offered a second path to victory, the path of betrayal. Here the legends tell of a people known as the Finn Folk, who are often confused for the shape-shifting Hulia I mentioned before. They are described as a secretive, powerful and mystical people who live in deep caves and along the shores of cold lakes. Though generally regarded as being distrustful of outsiders, the Finn folk over the years had slowly warmed to the Suak, offering them power in exchange for regular offerings that typically came in the form of meats harvested from the many beasts felled by the Suak's great hunters. However, this warmth crystallised to an icy chill when their minds turned to either the Kalavasi or the Steiner, both of whom possibly appeared more as invaders than potential allies to the Finn folk. The proposal to Ape was simple, do nothing, lay low and hidden, allow the trolls to battle the crazed Kalavasi and the uncouth Steiner before joining the war. Translating to Banzaniel, Jokeranta lays out the Finn folk proposal as, quote, Indeed, said the Finn folk, when the war is at its most terrible and everything rests upon the knife edge of chance and fate, the Suak should strike against the other two people and cast them down, and claim their lands and their secrets for themselves. The trolls would surely see the Suak and their Finn folk allies as friends, and an accord could be reached that left the trolls in the mountains 
and the one people to command the plains and marshes as it had been in the time before. End quote. It is said that Ape gave great thought to the proposal. After all, we are talking about the future of her people here, and remember, the old squabbles between the Kalavasi and the Suak were not so long in the past that their bitterness could entirely be forgotten. And who were the Steiner to Ape Suak? Bawdy outsiders, new to these lands and with no proof of their loyalty. The cold wastes of the north sometimes demanded hard choices to be made, and the hunter's path was never easy. Here Taban's histories continue the narrative with an attempt to discern how Ape came to her decision. Now we can't say what sources Taban was working from, but the histories, as they come down to us, are essentially putting thoughts into her head, so we must take them with a grain of salt. Jocalanta presents us their interpretations as follows. Quote, if the hunters of her people struck against the other two with cunning, without warning, and with the magic of the finfolk, they would surely prevail. What she realised, though, was that despite their victory, they would cease to be Suak, and would become something else, something bitter and cold, like the finfolk. End quote. So by this reasoning, it is deemed that together with the finfolk, the Suak could crush the Kalavasi and the Steiner. Not unreasonable, especially if the might of the trolls was already cast against both peoples. To me, though, the more interesting aspect of this moment in history is this idea of Ape and the Suak not turning against the Calavasi or the Steiner for moral reasons, or perhaps more accurately, for the notion of not violating the Suak ideas of self-identity. It is a hard motivation to prove, and it's certainly possible and perhaps even more reasonable to assume that some colder, harder calculus of risk and reward ratios was the actual reason. However, it's certainly not out of the question. In our own world, there are many parallels where a nation's vision of itself, its self-identity, becomes part of the decision-making process. Furthermore, while decisions taken by leaders in history can often seem like little more than forks in the road, when looking back from a distance. It is important to understand the uncertainties a leader or leadership faces. This is especially true when placed in the position of a monumental life or death decision, like Ape faces now. Given enough historical distance, we can tend towards the assumption that a leader's decisions are somehow unquestioned or absolute but to do so is to fully embrace the great person version of history, a vision that squeezes out the 99.9% of us who stand outside the circle of power. And though politics and its motions can often seem uncaring or even hopeless, I think all of us know just by glancing at the world at any given time, there are countless examples where the rest of us have, if not power, a force of momentum that forces the ruling classes to take notice. And I'm choosing to front-load this now with our first historical character, because it will be equally true of so many other historical figures we encounter from here on. What we know now is not what they knew then, and the black-and-white certainty that we can take from the texts that follow from their lives is never as simple, complex and confused 
as the full-colour, first-person experience of their lives. So, Ape chooses to turn the Finfolk down. Is that the right thing to do? Well, that's a sort of historical viewpoint question, or even perhaps a historical outcome kind of question. And it's a matter of conviction weighed up against the stakes at hand. You may be willing to sacrifice yourself for a cause, or maybe even your comrades, but what about everything? Your family, your friends, their children, and their children's children. Your people's possessions, their art, their culture, their freedom, and their future identity and place in history stretching into times far beyond the mere snuffing out of your own existence. What if those were the stakes? How would your ideals look then? What would you do? What truly betters the lives of your people if you could be one of free with the trolls or one of free against them? That's Ape's situation. That's Ape's decision. And Ape decides to turn down the Finfolk who respond by striking against the Suak, possibly hoping to earn reward and support from the trolls for themselves, neither of which came. Perhaps more important, though, are the weapons that the Finfolk used, and that is their powerful and much-feared magics. Now, magic is an interesting topic. You see, in our own world, where magic is fantasy, it's easy to forget about the possible impact it had on history. But when you consider that a significant number of our ancestors thought that magic was not only real, but an active component in life, well, history starts to get a lot more nuanced under that lens. At certain points, our ancestors' perceptions of magic, religion, and technology have been intertwined, and the divinations of an oracle, the visions of a shaman, or the recipe of a potion were all seen as part of life, as mysterious yet believed to an ancient person as the inner workings of your phone may be to you. Of course, in our own world, your phone is real and magic is not. But imagine if magic was truly real. Imagine if it could be replicated and had certain reliable, if not predictable, responses when used. That's magic as experienced in the world of empire, That's magic better compared to those parts of science we don't fully understand. Dark matter, quantum physics, and the hard problem of consciousness. Now adding magic, real magic, into the ingredients of the historical cake we're baking is a bit like adding sugar to the mix, with no specification of how much you should add. Too little, and the flavour will be missed. Too much, and the whole thing becomes undigestible. So even here, where magic is real, is capable of awesome displays of power, and people have undeniable proof of its existence, you still have to ward yourself against hand-waving history and opening the floodgates entirely. As our telling continues, magic will play a prominent role, but magical history within the world of the Empire must be treated with the same caution as any hard-to-quantify historical X-factor. So, with that in mind... And as an example of scale, let's continue with the Finfolk and their magical powers, as they are described by historian Jokiranta via their reading of Toban's annuals. Quote, the Finfolk had dominion against all those who had ever drowned in the waters of Semisuak, be they fresh or salt, 
and called them up to fight against the Suak and protect their sunken temples where they kept their hidden law. Yet, they were full of hubris. The dead were terrible, but they fell before the spears of the Suak. The magic of the Finfolk was mighty, but it was nothing before that of the Ice Walkers, who had learned much from the Lake Dwellers, but had much more lore of their own as well. The Finfolk were bitter, but their numbers could not match those of the Suak. End quote. If true and taken at face value, this means the Finfolk had some sort of necromantic power, capable of raising the dead and commanding them to fight against the Suak. This is no mere parlour trick. While it's possible to reason this away as some sort of historical metaphor, perhaps the drowned were not in fact dead, and were instead those saved from storms by the Finfolk and indebted to them, this won't be the wildest claim or use of magic we will encounter, and after a while the propensity of such accounts become overwhelming. Additionally, only a few years ago, the sea lost dead, as they are now known, were encountered in the East Flows, within the northern region of Semesuak. These groups, described as bloated husks, leave their victims drowned on dry land, and their existence would seem to support these ancient accounts of Finfolk magic. So Ape Suak were victorious over the Finfolk, but this was not to be a war of extermination. Remember, these two peoples had fostered close bonds over many years and regarded each other as allies. Instead, hostilities continued until the Finfolk could no longer endure the losses and instead chose to sue for peace while their strength was significant enough to muster terms. Jocolanta's work on the histories of this time details the peace that follows. Quote, In the end, peace was sworn between the two people. The Finfolk would not stand beside the Suak any more as their allies. That day had ended. They would diminish and return to their temples, and let the foolishness of the Suak destroy them when the day came, inevitably, that the Crowborn and the Starborn turned against the Sealborn. In return, Ape swore oaths that no others would get hold of the secrets of the Finfolk, and they would be safe to live out their bitter lives in their sunken temples, until such time as the marrow of the deep lakes were ready to live among the people of the sun and wind again. End quote. With the Finfolk threat dealt with, the Suak were at last able to join the Calavasi and Steiner and make plans for their war against the trolls. However, even though they now had the advantage in numbers, the free peoples had clearly learned from their previous encounters and realised that the physical dominance and ferocity of the trolls made victory through a set-piece battle impossible. Instead, the Suak hunters and Steiner warriors would launch a coordinated campaign to harry and ultimately draw out the trolls, pulling them from their high fortress holdfasts into the valleys below. Meanwhile, the Calavasi would perform a great ritual and collapse the glaciers on top of the mountains. Perhaps understanding that the free peoples were now motivated towards a war of extermination against the trolls, Ape set out to offer the trolls a peaceful alternative. Indeed, according to Torban, she quote, 
sought a peaceful meeting with an ancient troll to find a path that would end the war early. Killed by treachery, she was succeeded by Ulmo Apison, who would in time be crowned the first king of Wintermark. End quote. And so, with Ape's death, it was to be war. Though a pivotal moment in the history of the Free Peoples, little detail concerning the actual actions themselves has made its way down to us. Individual deeds are mentioned here and there, and honoured in songs and oral traditions, but it's hard to visualise the campaign itself through these accounts alone. I will therefore ask for your indulgence as I do my best to reason a possible set of occurrences from the details as I understand them. Those seeking the pure facts as written only need know that the ritual of the Calavasi was successful, with the glaciers collapsed atop the trolls, sealing them away within an icy underworld. However, if the ritual was capable of such destruction, why not simply crumble the holdfasts of the trolls from the safety of the lowlands? Why risk your forces in battle at all? We will examine the possible magics used later, but for now, let us assume that targeting the base of the mountains themselves from a safe distance was impossible. With this assumption in hand, we can suggest that the ritual itself needed to be performed in some strategic proximity to the target or targets in question, similar to how we may need to place explosive charges in order to achieve a similar result in our own world. Perhaps then, multiple teams of Calavasi mystics had to be dispatched to different locations so they could simultaneously trigger their rituals for maximum effect. When viewed this way, the survival and secrecy of these teams becomes paramount, with the failure of only achieving a partial detonation, rumbling the whole plan and possibly throwing away many key and hard-to-replace assets. Possibly for these reasons, it was deemed necessary to bring the trolls down into the valley and lowlands in sufficient strength to depopulate their mountain holdings and allow the teams to reach their designated targets unmolested. To garner this reaction, a campaign of raids, ambushes and skirmishes would likely be required. The cunning Suak and bold Steiner would be well suited to such roles and could target key resources or lesser defended possessions without risking a full pitch battle. Great and prominent halls of the current winter folk can trace their origins to these times. Halls like Dunhalf, which began life as little more than a tatty command tent during the war with the trolls, and Stenstorp, founded by Sten Rockbeard and his companions after their legendary encounter with Toothcutter, a feared chieftain of the trolls. More widely, Steiner heroes would engage in bold actions, wielding massive great axes known to us as Troll Slayer Crescents. They would use these sweeping blades to bring down their targets, and heroes like Sigrid Alvesdottir, who would herself become, quote, a legendary champion of the Steiner, who slay Vatir, the one-eyed war leader of the trolls, and as her reward, claimed the crown of the Steiner, end quote. Such trespasses could not be tolerated, and the trolls would take the bait. Marshalling their forces into the unwitting kill zone of the Calavasi-induced avalanche, trying to identify the magics used 
by the Kalavasi, based on current magical understanding in the Empire, is difficult. But known rituals, like rising roots that rend stone, which cause plant life to rapidly flourish, probe, and exploit the weaknesses in fortifications. Or rituals like inevitable collapse into ruin, which ages, deteriorates, and invokes general disaster upon a fortification, are both candidates. Both rituals weaken or destroy a fortification, so perhaps the trolls' homes themselves were targeted en masse and sent tumbling down the mountains. More likely the magics used stem from some greater lost ritual, capable of even wider destruction or targeting features upon the mountains themselves. Importantly though, such rituals require a coven to imprint these powers upon an implement such as the rod or wand, wielded by hand and released by touching this implement upon a fortification itself. This would further support the idea that the Calavasi had to make their way to designated targets in order to achieve their objective. Regardless of the powers used, it is unclear how hotly battle was joined at the foot of the mountain when the Calavasi brought this destruction down upon the field. Timing was no doubt crucial, but several accounts do suggest losses sustained during this encounter. It is therefore likely that many winter folk gave their lives to the same ice that buried their ancient foes. And so the trolls were defeated, their civilization at an end. And what did it sound like? A great battle dwarfed by the hard press of onrushing ice. And its sights? Their ancient homes dragged down from the mountains to bury them in tombs of their own making. A crescendo bled into silence. A cascade of white bedded into black. Many winter folk had given their lives to build the civilization that followed, and through these bonds of mutual sacrifice, the free peoples emerged united, not as a single people, but a nation, accepting of its individual traditions and bound by their shared experiences. Here we leave Toban's annuals and round out this part of the story with the Minister for Historical Research, Lozif of Phoenix Reach, Quoting now from A Tale of Years by the Scop Arna the Golden. Quote, After the war, a victory celebration was held in Hanmark. A traditional Steiner Grand Moot, a Witten, was called, where three representatives of each people spoke on the nature of their achievement and what must be done next to survive. It is said that amidst the speeches, the great leaders of the Suak, the Kalavasi, and the Steiner each shed a single tear for the trolls, and that these three tears froze in an instant, becoming clear gems. These gems were collected by the most cunning of the Suak hunters, and set in a crown forged from the torques and rings of the fallen heroes of the free people. The wisest of the Kalavasi mystics crowned Ulmo the Suak, king of the free tears, ruler of the new nation, Wintermark. End quote. And thus Wintermark was formed. Free people, one nation would be the call that endures to the present day. Now united, with territory to expand and explore, a new human power was rising in the north. And in time, this power would wend its way into the forging of the new empire as it is known today. But that is another story, and there is much more to tell. For as the Steiner found the Suak, 
and the Kalavasi, their ancient siblings the Vard, would find the Ushka in the shadows of the trees, where the darkness of the forests keeps many horrors as yet untold. What you just listened to is the first and hopefully a series of episodes digging into the history of the Empire. When I mentioned to David, my podcasting co-conspirator, that I wanted to add this epilogue section to this episode, he said, don't apologise too much, which admittedly is my general nature. So instead, I'll try and turn this into a celebration of the process and a behind-the-curtain peek where I can talk around a few things for those of you who have sat through nearly an hour and can bear to hear a little more. So firstly, what you listened to was heavily inspired by Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcasts, which I highly recommend, and if all I achieve is sending a few of you to listen to his work, then I'm over the moon. Dan has this way of presenting history, real-world history in his case, with fantastic drama, scale, and this wonderful, almost first-person perspective where he takes you to a place, sets you up with the facts, and then asks you head-on, now what would you do? And that's just something that I find incredibly powerful as a listener. Now Dan's just got one of these voices and this way of speaking that I simply would not be able to replicate. So early on I decided to see if I could get something in that style working, but told in my own way, using my own voice. So hopefully if I've carried you this far through the recording... I did well enough on that score. And full disclosure, what I started with, or more accurately I should say what I ended with, was not what I originally intended. I posed this question about the end of civilization at the start of the episode, and originally that question was going to reference a major event in imperial history that I never even got near, the fall of Teruniel. As it turns out, and as you just heard, I barely got as far through the history as the formation of a single nation, Wintermark, with a few scant references to some other nations here and there. There was not even a mention of Teruniel in the whole episode. What can I say? I fell in love with the source material, and more importantly, the story it let me tell. I think I realised early on that there was no way I was hitting Teruniel in this episode. But I don't know if any of you are like me, but I sort of let myself live the lie and kept up this pretense that I would somehow squeeze it in. This let me keep that motif of civilizational ruin that I love so much, and that really seemed to be weaving everything together so well. 
As it turns out, the stories of the Winter Folk, the Finn Folk, and the Trolls just made such an incredible narrative demonstration of this idea that accepting defeat and losing Teruniel in this episode was actually a real victory in and of itself. It gave me so much more freedom to explore these ideas through just the epic scale of the whole saga of the Troll War. So I have to thank all of the writers and the behind the scenes folks who make the Empire Wiki and the histories you can read there what they are. The depth and the detail of what they have created is so mind-boggling and so beautifully written. Being able to learn and quote from their work made the entire process a total joy. And as detailed as I like to think I've been, the truth of the matter is that I probably left another hour's worth of notes on the cutting room floor putting this together, and even if I included that, it would still not have been everything. So if you're craving more about this story, dig into the wiki and discover it for yourself, or who knows, maybe I'll return to some of these missed details later down the road. No promises. Now doing this, and putting it all together, took a frankly embarrassing amount of time, so I don't know how quickly I'm going to be able to get more episodes like this out to you all. As a result, I'm just going to promise that there will be more, and I'll leave it at that. Hopefully if you've enjoyed this one, the next time I release an episode, I can make it worth the wait. So before I leave you, I'll touch briefly on something I left out of the story. The Guildheim Runeforge. You see, under Guildheim in Skarsind, a remarkable archaeological discovery has recently been made. An ancient runeforge, a place used for the creating of powerful magical items, has been found, and it is believed to be possibly of troll origin. If true, it reveals a little more of the lost troll civilization, and maybe more still remains out there, lost beneath the ice. Now the people of old are buried and gone, torn down by mortal fears. And the conqueror's crown glitters so cold, borne down by frozen tears. Oh, I am the last of the trolls, so learn well the words of my song. For the singing will fade, and the silence will last, when I... And finally gone.